Let's stand then. And uh, I'm going to read for us Psalm 77. If you're grabbing the uh, blue Bibles and the chairs, it's about halfway, right halfway through your Bibles. So if you're there, we follow along. I'm reading in the English Standard Translation. Psalm 77 to the choir master, according to the Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love, his chesed forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, and you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word for us this morning, and Lord, we ask you now that you attend to us as we attend to your word now. Uh, the words, the first words of the psalm, I cry aloud to the Lord, alert us that this is a certain kind of psalm. This is a, what's often called a psalm of lament, uh, or as one Old Testament theologian described these psalms that, uh, make up almost half of our Psalter. Uh, these are psalms of disorientation. They're psalms for God's covenant people when they're not sure which way is up and which way is down. And so by way of uh, introduction to this passage this morning, as well as an introduction to myself, I want to share a little bit about my own story, particularly um, last year, 2021, for me and my family. Uh, was, was perhaps uh, the hardest year of our, our lives, at the center of um, our particular trouble, um, not saying our trouble was any greater than anyone else's, but at the center of our particular hardship last year uh, was that my wife experienced unprecedented anxiety and depression. Um, for as long as I've known my wife, uh, she has been a strong and a confident, uh, one of the sharpest women I have ever known. And, uh, and, and last year, 
a bit of trauma that was triggered from church conflict. Um, y'all don't know anything about that here, do you? Uh, triggered some, some trauma in her life. And so in November 2020, um, it all came to a, to, to a head. And she entered into a very a season, what seemed to us a very long season, um, of anxiety and depression that, that we had not seen coming, even though in hindsight now we can have seen how it, it uh, actually come. And so in November, I, I, uh, uh, she just, one morning she just wouldn't get out of bed. She couldn't get out of bed. Uh, and so I managed to, to encourage her, and we went to a cemetery across from our, our home, our neighborhood. And so we said, well, let's just take a walk. We took the kids. They scrambled off. We're running around the cemetery. And, I, and my wife um, made her way in, into the cemetery, and then she found a gravestone, and she just curled up next to this gravestone, it wouldn't move. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is bad. <laughs> this is very bad. This is very different than what I'm accustomed to. And uh, we, we thought at first, well, this, this will pass, right? This is just a season. Um, and, uh, and it's something, maybe a few good nights rest, maybe some, you know, sea salt chocolate, you know, can cure this after a few days. And, and it didn't. It didn't, uh, it didn't go away. Um, it, in fact, it got worse. And, uh, and her anxiety and depression got to the place where we can no longer engage those who were, th- whom we were in conflict in our church. That was frustrating for them. So it made the, the conflict, uh, worse. Uh, because the, the particular triggers for her particular anxiety and depression were the church, the church community. There was not one single Sunday in 2021 that she woke up on Sunday morning wanting to go to church. Um, and that was a, so that's a hardship of my, my job, right? This is, this is my work. This is my livelihood and my, my wife. And I'm so uh, proud of the way she uh, handled this. Her intent through this whole um, hardship for us was to do this in a very Godward way. Um, and so by God's grace, uh, we, we managed to get our whole family to church all but three Sundays in 2021, uh, even though no Sunday was easy for her to go. And by God's grace, we were able to, to adjust and able to um, arrive in church. Um, but it was difficult because, because then it, it bled into the other areas of our life. And you know the way that suffering seems to like attract other suffering. Uh, and so our, our finances begin to struggle because we couldn't talk about our budget. Um, uh, every time we talk about money, uh, she would have a panic attack. And so our finances were struggling. We, we chose to homeschool our kids um, and, and much was going undone there. Uh, Sundays were hard. And so this was our year, 2021, anxiety and depression. We had no idea what to do. Um, my, my wife is, is struggling uh, emotionally to find her footing. And for me, the toll it took on me was that I became emotionally numb. Uh, by which I mean I had, I had no more prayers to pray. When you're emotionally numb, I didn't become angry, I didn't become sad. Uh, I didn't become frustrated or happy or joyful. I was just flat numb. And I'm a pastor. I have a seminary degree, you know, so whenever I'm called on to pray, you know, I can cough up some words and some theology of some kind. Uh, but um, there was no, for that season, no heart. I was emotionally weary. And particularly, I had no no prayers to pray. You can only pray for God to heal and change things so many times. And I was fresh out of prayers. And so during that season, one habit that uh, my wife and I have had for over a decade is that we have, in addition to reading other things in the morning, we have always read the Psalms together. 
uh, every day, whether we read other things, we'd always read at least one psalm, and then we would come together and we would pray over those psalms. And up to this point, up to this point, a third of our Psalter, which are these individual psalms of lament, like Psalm 77, uh, we would always feel like they didn't quite connect with us. Uh, they didn't quite connect with our experience. Sometimes we just kind of like blow past them and kind of go on to uh, other psalms. But in this season, in this season where I no longer had any prayers to pray, God gave me prayers that I can pray. And he gave me the treasure of what I'm going to show us today, one example of a particular kind of psalms, the psalms of lament. There was a, a Christian leader named Athanasius um, in the early church, Christian leader and, and thinker, and he wrote a great little letter to a friend who was suffering. And he told his friend, he said, I want you to read the psalms. And, and here's why. He said, because every other part of the Bible is designed to speak to you, but the psalms are designed to speak for you. And this is what I found to be true during this particular um, iteration of hardship in our own life, is that the psalms of lament gave me prayers when I no longer had prayers to pray. And I want to tip my hand a little bit and share with you what my hope is for you today. Um, my hope as we look at Psalm 77 is not simply to share by way of testimony how this psalm and psalms like this have been impactful to me and my family. I, I not simply want to exposit Psalm 77, although I'm going to do that as well. Uh, my, what my hope is for us this morning is that you come or continue to personalize and own the psalms of lament as your own. God has designed and entrusted these psalms, the psalms of disorientation, the psalms of lament, to be the treasure, this is my main point if you're taking notes, <laughs> to be the treasure of God's people, summoning us to come to God as we really are, to God as he truly is. So Psalm 77, uh, like all the psalms of lament, um, uh, with the exception of two, Psalm 44 and Psalm 88, with the exception of those two, all the psalms of lament have a movement, what we might call, from disorientation to new orientation. Disorientation to new orientation. And in the, the here in this psalm, you can see in your Bibles, verses 1 through 9 are the bit about disorientation, where the, the psalmist and where God himself authorizes you and I to come to him with a rawness, with an honesty about how we're really doing. Psalms 1, verses 1 through 9. 77, 1 through 9 reflects this. And then verses 10 through 20, we have the movement into the second half of what a psalm of lament does into a pathway, a journey into new orientation, a new perspective. So this rhythm, this journey of the psalms of lament, take us as we own them, as we personalize them, as we pray them, from a place of disorientation to orientation, from a place of plea to a place of praise, from a place of confusion to a place of new perspective. So let's watch how Psalm 77 does this here. Verses 1 through 9, in a disorientation, our psalmist is going to do four things. He's going to cry for help, describe his trouble, scramble for solutions, and then voice his doubts. So watch what he does in verse 1. The first thing he does in his disorientation is he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Cry aloud. Literally in Hebrew, it says, my voice toward God, that he is having an audible projection from his human lungs toward an unseen sovereign 
of the universe. My voice goes out to God. And his audible crying out to the Lord tells us something about the Psalms of Lament and clears up some confusion that we often have. Some people think that the Psalms of Lament are evidence of a lack of faith. Surely the thinking goes that if you had enough faith and enough trust in God, you wouldn't pray prayers like this, prayers filled with doubt, prayers filled with questioning of God's character, of his love for you. But in fact, what we see from the psalm itself is that the exact opposite is true. It is those who pray and cry out such prayers who actually have faith. So these prayers, crying aloud to the God of the universe, are, are an act of faith, not lack of faith. Uh, we know this because if you really truly believe that no one was listening to you, you wouldn't cry out. Read the story of a man and his wife who adopted some children from Russia. And they said what struck us, they went to visit the orphanage where their potential adopted children were. And they said what struck us as we entered into this orphanage filled with children was the silence. No cries, no shouts, no giggles, even though there were children everywhere in this orphanage. And he said what he realized as they tried to figure out what, what was the case, why this was the, the case, that there was no noise in this orphanage among all these children, is that their caretakers never responded to their cries. And so the net result of having no one to hear, no one to listen, no one to come when they shouted or cried was that they just stopped crying altogether. It is those who know that one will listen who are those who cry. So the Psalms of Lament, filled with uncomfortable questions and doubts as they are, are actually an act of faith, not an evidence of lack of faith. So he cries aloud for help. His quiet times, if we can call them that, are actually noisy times, filled with audible reaching for the Lord. And in verses 2 through 3, he moves from crying to help to describing his trouble. When day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Now let's make a couple of observations here about this trouble. The first thing to note about his trouble is that it's an unspecified trouble. This is maddening sometimes when we read the Psalms. They don't always tell us the historical situation behind the Psalm that is written. You ever notice this? Um, sometimes the superscriptions will give us some details about how it was written or why it was written, for what purpose it was written. But by and large, the Psalms like this one tell us that the guy's in trouble and something's eating at him, but it won't tell us what it is. And this is by design. Do you know why the Psalms do this? Why, in this case, and in other Psalms of Lament, they're unspecified. The sins often go unnamed. The enemies go unknown. The trouble goes unaddressed or just undescribed. The reasons why for this ambiguity, the unspecificity of the trouble that the psalmist is going through is because God wants these psalms to be personalized by you and me. He doesn't want us to so be caught up in what the original author is going through that we don't take these psalms and make them our own. They are designed to be yours. They are designed to be your prayers, your cries to the Lord. But not only do we see in his trouble that it's unspecified, uh, it's also unresolved. It's unresolved. Look in your Bibles. He says, the day of my trouble, I'm seeking the Lord, but it's a trouble that also extends into the night as well. Our psalmist is an insomniac. He can't sleep well. 
And it says, in the night, listen to these words, my hand is stretched out without wearying. Essentially what the, the, the psalmist is saying, what you and I might say when we, when we pray and it feels like our prayers just hit the ceiling. Uh, he's saying that I'm crying out for God to change this thing in my life. And God isn't answering. He doesn't seem to be responding at all to my prayers. And so the way he describes it is that my hand, a posture of Jewish prayer, is stretched out without wearying. So even though the sense of this phrase, stretched out without wearying, my hand is stretched out without wearying, it is that he feels like God is not answering him. There's something critical about the use of his hand. Visualize this. He sees his hand stretched out. He's going to develop that. And that's going to be a link, his hand, his weak, impotent, helpless hand to change his situation is going to be a link for him into a new way of thinking in his relationship with the Lord. Tuck that away. We'll come to that in just a moment. But he says, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I remember God. I moan. I meditate. My spirit faints. In other words, what he's saying is that um, I'm, something's eating at me. I'm having trouble, and it's not going away anytime soon. One of the reasons why the psalm of lament are valuable for God's people uh, is because much of our trouble is unresolved. It has no end in sight. And the American church, the American Christians, by and large, are uncomfortable with unresolved trouble. <laughs> uh, we like the quick fixes. We like to think that we have enough knowledge or power or money or medical expertise to deal with our problems. And the reality is, is that sometimes our problems are not resolved. Sometimes the prayers for God to change things and heal things are going to go unanswered for a very long time. And the psalmist here has that kind of trouble. Uh, one book my wife and I uh, found very, very helpful uh, was a book by K.J. Ramsey. And, the, and the, the title of this book is worth the price of the book. The title of the book was This Too Shall Last. <laughs> and she says this is not a before or after story. She says, I'm writing from a hospital bed as an IV drips into my blood. And she says, God's people need to become comfortable reaching for the Lord from the middle of their suffering, not just after their suffering or before their suffering. This is where our psalmist is. She writes, living with long-term suffering in American culture feels like being off-key. Suffering quiets and slows but our culture prefers a crescendo. So the psalmist says, I'm in trouble, and my trouble's not going away anytime soon. My hand is stretched out without wearying. You have trouble like this? Trouble that when it initially came, people asked you how it was going, but then because it was around for so long, they eventually stopped asking you how it's going. <laughs> or what happens that happened in our case when uh, we realized that my wife's anxiety and depression was not just going to go away with dark chocolate <laughs> and a few good nights of rest. Uh, what often happens is you yourself or your community around you will begin scrambling for solutions. They begin scrambling for solutions. This is exactly what the psalmist does. Look at verses 4 through 6. He moves from crying aloud to, to describing his trouble to scrambling for solutions. In verses 4 through 6, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I cannot speak. 
And he says, what would I do? Well, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. He thinks, perhaps if I get some just really good worship music, that will pop me out of my funk, pop me out of my malaise, and I'll feel better again. He says, I just need a little bit of bless the Lord, O my soul, and then I'll have a few more reasons to bless the Lord. Maybe he turns the, the dial on his radio to KLTY or you know, whatever your Christian radio is in Graham, and just thinks maybe the worship songs, the songs that used to inculcate joy in me, will work again. And what we find in the Psalms is that they, they don't work. They, their power they had at one point to help him uh, seems ineffective here, because where he goes next is he voices doubts. His soul, from the evidence of his personal experience, renders a verdict on God as the steps, as the solutions he takes to remedy his depression, his trouble, become ineffective and fail. And in verses 6 through 9, the last part of this, this part of disorientation, he voices his doubts about God. And there are five questions, five troubled questions that the psalmist asks Wondering if the God that he's read about in the Bible is really the God who really is. Look at these. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love, this beautiful Hebrew word chesed, the the covenant love, the faithful love of God, maybe that's just dried up. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Maybe, maybe I've just, my trouble has stirred and I've sinned too many times for him to forgive again. And maybe he's angry at me. Maybe his anger has caused his compassion to be shut up for good. And there's no more for me left. Maybe this is the case. And the psalmist voices in this inspired scripture, his doubts before the Lord. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament theologian, says we see here in these questions an inner collision between canonical memory and concrete pain. And if we might linger here on this last bit of the disorientation of the psalmist for a moment, do you see here, friends, how because this is inspired, the Lord invites and authorizes his covenant people to be honest about where they are. He invites and summons God's covenant people, even when where they are is not in a good place with the Lord. And their emotions are not in a place, their doubts are not in the place of faith. Walter Brueggemann again says, much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. As children of the Enlightenment, we have censored and selected around the voice of darkness and disorientation, seeking to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it is a lie in terms of our experience. God invites us to come as we are. Um, And again, as I mentioned, one of the reasons why the Christian church, the American Christian church, needs to own the Psalms of Lament 
It's because, by and large, we are out of touch with the brokenness of our world if we neglect them. We are out of touch with the real experience of men and women who wonder, is there a God who really does love in these ways? Um, Mike Cosper wrote a book called uh, Rhythms of Grace about worship, and he said there was a crisis among worship leaders after 9-11. He said because worship leaders who often draw their songs from Nashville that are often singularly focused on praise and joy and emotional highs. He says the canon of worship songs that the worship leaders had had no songs in the wake of a disaster like 9-11. They said we had no songs of lament, no psalms of lament to sing. You're uncomfortable with these. And yet God, God says, come to me, own the prayers that you pray to me from the Psalms come in all your mess, all your doubts, all your fears. Come as you are. Even if as you are is uncomfortable for other Christians around you. And come to me. Um, I mentioned that my wife and I prayed through the Psalms and that she, she I'm so proud of her. She did this through through the whole year that we were trying to figure out how to to treat the depression and anxiety. Um, and, and we would, every now and then we would come across these, um, they're called imprecatory psalms. You know, it's psalms where there's some enemy just doing something really nasty to the psalmist. And he just prays that God would just go after him. And, and my wife starts praying these prayers. And I'm like, sweetheart, you, you, you can't pray those about people in our church. And, and she, and she's like, well, well, why not? They're in the Bible. And I didn't have an answer for that. I'm like, okay, well, go ahead, fine. <laughs> you know, pray that God bl- blast them, amen. Blast them out of the water. These are prayers that God authorizes us to pray and to come. And, and if we might just draw an implication of that for the culture in which we live as a Christian community, uh, do we, in our Christian community, in our small groups, in a culture that we inculcate in our churches, makes space for people with unresolved doubts about God? Or do we feel the pressure to quickly get them resolved? When people come and they say, I'm just wondering, especially, especially friends, our young people, our high schoolers, who are, who are getting so many messages from the culture around them and trying to decide, well, is God really like this? Is God really loving if we have these kinds of people? Did he make them this way? And as they come with these questions and these doubts about God, do we create a space not only for those questions to be answered, but for them to be discovered in the context of those who come to God as they really are with their doubts and with their concerns? I think such psalms, like the Psalms of Lament, teach and condition us to have a bandwidth, a space for people with doubts about the Lord. Remember, there's a great little letter in the New Testament called the letter to Jude. And he begins this letter saying, I want you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Or to be strong on your convictions about God and the faith that's been entrusted to you. But you know how he ends the letter? Verse 22, Jude 22, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. What a word we need to hear. Have mercy on those who doubt. Do we create space for people with their doubts, to, in God's timing, discover to explore those uncomfortable spaces 
so they can come to God as they really are. So we've covered the disorientation bit. Um, we're we're in, in these psalms. The Lord invites us to come as we are. What, uh, what changes for the psalm, psalmist? What, uh, what shifts his perspective? Like I mentioned, with the exception of two, two psalms, 44 and 88, all psalms of lament, without changing the psalmist's circumstances every time, bring the psalmist himself, and by virtue of us, since I'm arguing that, that he's inviting and taking us on a journey, they bring us to a new vista, a new way of seeing the facts as they are. And so what emerges in verses 10 through 20 is what we might call new orientation. Not only verses 1 through 9, coming to God as we really are, but now new orientation, coming to God as he truly is. And the hinge verse that shifts this perspective is verse 10. It says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand. There's that word again, hand. The right hand of the most high. Uh, now, you deserve to know there's, there's a little bit of this discussion um, about this verse, and it shows up a little bit different in, in translation. So, um, the, the, the word the word appeal translated appeal in this verse um, could be translated grief or anguish. And there's a question about what the hand of the Most High is doing. Is is it is the hand of the Most High something done on behalf of His people, or is it something that's that's done against His people? So the net effect of those translations, if you have a New American Standard or the New King James Version, they see verse 10 as kind of a um, uh, a pessimistic conclusion to verses 1 through 9. Uh, but if you have the English Standard Version or the New International Version, what you'll find is that verse 10 becomes a hinge. So e- either verse 10 is a low point in the psalm or it's the turning point in the psalm, right? So that's the, the discussion that goes on. I think that verse 10 is a turning point in the psalm for this reason. Um, and that, and that, that he, what he's really doing is he is appealing to something outside of his personal experience. And that's because of the way the word hand is developed in the psalm. Notice in verse 2, remember what the psalmist has done? He's looked at his hand, powerless, pathetic, weak, unable to change anything in his life. And what does he do now? He says, if I'm going to marshal evidence for faith, if I'm going to have answers for these real doubts I have about God and about his character, I'm going to have to appeal to a different hand a different hand altogether to answer these questions. And so I think verse 10 is a hinge, is a turning point in this psalm where the psalmist goes outside. And, and think of this word. I love the translation appeal. I will appeal to this. Why, why do we have appeals in our court system? Well, we have appeals in our legal court systems when uh, somebody is uneasy with a verdict that has been rendered. When a verdict has been rendered that you're, you're not quite sure about, then you want to appeal that verdict. You want to be the re-sifting of the evidence, a re-look at the facts of the case, that perhaps a different verdict will be reached. And this is what we find the psalmist doing. He says, I want a retrial. I want to appeal the verdict that my soul has reached about the character of God. And I want to know, is there a different way of looking at this? Is there evidence that has not been brought to the table? that might alter the conclusions my soul has reached about God. And what the psalmist does, he chooses then to appeal to a hand, an arm outside of his own that is outstretched and not, has no answers. And so as he arrives at this new orientation, what one thing you'll notice in this psalm, notice how the, 
the, the, the pronouns change from I. I cry aloud in the day of my trouble, my soul, my hand. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled. I said, notice how the eyes begin to shift to you. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might. You with your arm have redeemed. When the water saw you, O oh God, they were afraid. There is a shift from him and his own circumstances that have caused his soul to draw a certain conclusion about God that is now being shifted as he focuses to who God really is. And this is what the Psalms of Lament do. They invite us, first of all, to gloriously come as we are in our honesty, in our rawness, but then they challenge us to come to God as he truly is, to deal with the God as he is. And so the psalmist then, appealing to the right hand of the Most High, thinks backwards in his history. Um, John Flavel, the, the English Puritan, wrote a book called The Mystery of the Providence of God. And he said, um, often God's providences, like Hebrew letters, have to be read backwards. And he says, if my present circumstances are not sufficient evidence to have faith in the God of the Bible, then I will have to appeal to evidence outside of my present experience to come to the table. And that's what he does. And where does he go? Look at where he goes. He goes to Exodus. He goes to the book of Exodus. And here, unlike verse 2, verse 3, He's no longer remembering God or meditating in a cursory way, in a furtive way, in a moving on to other things sort of way. Now he is taking time to linger, to meditate and to remember as he considers the story that has shaped the people, the covenant people that he is in. He says, now I meditate on your mighty deeds, verse 12. Uh, The word meditate is really a, a great word. Martin Luther makes some comments on this. Psalm, and uh, in his exposition of this psalm, he describes meditation. He says, there is a difference between meditating and thinking. To meditate is to think carefully, deeply, and diligently, and properly it means to muse in the heart. Hence, to meditate is, as it were, to stir up in the inside or to be moved in the innermost self. Uh, Elsewhere, Luther will describe meditation as tending to a slow-burning fire. Um, You have to linger there on one particular thing. You know, when I go camping with my, my kids, you know, my, my son will be like, hey, dad, can I, can I start the fire? And I'll be like, sure. And you know, he'll, uh, he'll put some paper under there and just throw these giant logs on there and expect it to be roaring within seconds. And uh, I'm like, no, son, you, here's how you do it. You've got to start small and you have to stay right there. You can't move. And you have to feed little bits to the fire a little bit at a time. And Luther says, that's what meditation is like. You Tend to the story, to the thought, to the scripture. Not in a way that wanders off and does other things, but sits there long enough until the flames grow, until a new and a fresher flame emerges of love, emerges for the Lord. So the psalmist says, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to sit here. And with my doubts, I'm going to think hard and think long about the story of God's people. And so he goes to Exodus. See, you think of these words, wonders, work, mighty deeds, uh, who is great like our God, God who works wonders, make known your might among the people. You with your arm redeemed your people. You know, all, all of these terms could be hyperlinks to Exodus 1 through 13, uh, where this language is first used of redemption in Exodus chapter 15, where we're told in Exodus 6, 6, God says, I see my people in their disorientation, in their suffering, and I'm going to redeem them 
with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. There it is. And the psalmist, as he looks at his hand, as he appeals to the hand of the Most High, runs to the outstretched arm and open hand of the God who promised his people that he would break them free, that he would rescue them. And in these great uh, stories of the ten plagues of Egypt, where the creator of all that's ordered and good unravels his own creation for the sake of his people in order to free them, where he brings them to the very brink of the Red Sea. And here in this moment, in their disorientation, they are left with the idea of, God, did you make a mistake? <laughs> did Are you loving us? Are you caring for us? Why did you bring us here? Do you see what the psalmist is doing? He's allowing his disorientation to connect with the disorientation of his people in a moment when they weren't sure what God was like or what God was doing. What will God do in this moment of chaos when the forces of nature simply terrify us? And the psalmist affirms that the way of God, the way of God that's going to be, we find later, the way through the sea is the holy way. It's a holy way. Why is it holy? Not just because God goes there, but because it's the designated path that God has chosen for his people to go. Right? It wasn't like their GPS got messed up. They're like, whoops, we ended up at the Red Sea, right? God led them there. He led them to this place of terror and fear where the chariots of Pharaoh are closing in and the chaotic, uncontrolled, terrifying sea stands in front of them, trapping them. And in the disorientation, they say, which way are we supposed to go again? And the psalmist says it was a holy way. And I wonder if, if, if in this moment, whatever trouble the Lord has permitted into your life, are you able to see that way as a holy way? As not just a place that you meander to because of your sin, because of your choices, or because of the mere brokenness of the world, but a way in which God has led you. All this way, Deuteronomy 8 says, all this way the Lord your God has led you in this way, into the wilderness. The way of God, even the ways through just extreme brokenness, are ways that he has led us. And then the final part of this new orientation is that the psalmist retells, but in a wonderful way that is Hebrew poetry at its best. He retells the story of the Red Sea crossing. And he says, the things that frighten us are frightened of our God. <laughs> The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The deep trembles, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Your thunder crashed. Your lightnings light up the world. The, the word crashed there in verse 18. The crash of your thunder is literally the word, the word voice, the voice of your thunder. Remember, his voice is weakly crying out at the beginning. Now God's voice powerfully thundering on behalf of his people, frightening the seas into subjection. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. And then this wonderful phrase, yet your footprints were unseen. The psalm has, has, has taken us to that seashore, right? Where, whereas God's people, still wet from the spray of the sea, are gathered on that shore and watching 
their enemies floating face down, who had enslaved them, who had abused them, who had ripped their infants from their arms, now crushed by the God who had rescued his people through the waters. And they look at the still, still calm sea, and they say, was God here? <laughs> There's no evidence he was here. His footprints are unseen. But he was here. His way was holy. And he led us. And so the psalmist has taken you and I on a journey, as, as do all the psalms of lament, from place of just honest crying out, as we really are, but then summoning us to consider God as he really is, often looking outside of our present experience to the stories itself that bear witness to what God's character is like when his people are disoriented. And there's one other thing we have to consider as we read these psalms, because I hope you will. I hope you will make these psalms your own. And that is that one thing that's instinctive for those who have the whole Bible in their hearts is that even as the psalmist is forcing his mind backwards to stories that happened long ago before him, the new covenant reader, the one who has the gospels, the one who has the New Testament, is almost driven, compelled to go forward. Because as we're reading about the God of Israel, all of a sudden we're starting to see a semblance in someone else that we recognize. What is the psalm doing for large part for God's people? Well, how do the psalms messianically point to Jesus as we know they should or know they do? Here's often how they do it. Uh, The psalms, if we just read them as they stand, have as one of their aims to simply familiarize God's people with the God of Israel. As if to say, as we sing, as we pray, as we listen, as we hear these psalms, we are beginning to know what the God of Israel is actually like. And now you can understand why the disciples responded the way they did. They have grown up singing the Psalms. They have grown up listening and praying the Psalms of lament, like Psalm 77. And they know that the God of Israel is the God who frightens seas into subjection for the good of his people. And now you see why when their seashore is calm, on the other side of Jesus saying, peace, they aren't thankful. They aren't, well, that was a neat trick. What does the, the text say that's been read for us? That they're filled with great fear. I had a, we did this actual text in our home group uh, for our church one time, and one of uh, the guys in our group made a really, really profound observation. He, he said, I, I just don't understand why they were filled with fear. He's like, um, everything in this text that was frightening had, had vanished. Like the sea was calm. Their boat was, you know, just gently lobbing in the water. Uh, they were fine. Um, what, everything that was frightening had vanished from that scene. And yet the text says they weren't just afraid, but they were filled with great, their, their fear actually escalated from what it was like in the storm. And as he and I looked at that text together, and I said, well, that's a great question. You know, why, why are they filled with fear in this moment? And what he and I, as we were thinking through and looking at this passage together, 
realized was that all that was frightening in that environment hadn't vanished. (laughs) In fact, the most frightening thing in that story was still there, very clearly in front of them. And it was the one who frightens the seas themselves in the subjection for the good of his people. And in that moment, with Psalm 77 and Psalms like this in their hearts, they realize that the one in front of us is the one who embodies the God of Israel. The one who, for the good and for the love of his people, will make ways through the chaotic seas. And so do you you see how then the Psalms um, never stay within the Psalter? They invite us on a journey, a rhythm from disorientation, coming to God as we really are, to a place of new orientation, to God as he truly is. But in the process, they are inviting us backwards into the stories that remind us of what God's character and love is like when our present experience is not enough to convince us that's the case. And then they shove us forward at the same time. As we have the witness of the Gospels in our heart and our hands, they shove us forward and tell us that this one, this being, this rabbi who walked earth, whose footprints were seen, must embody the God of the Psalms that we've been taught, the character we've become familiar with, the one that we've come to trust and to know, to love, to worship, is embodied in this one, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who belong to him belong to the one who loves his people and who conquers their fears and who will one day right all wrongs, who will wipe all tears from all eyes, who will make all that is sad come untrue, and who, for whom the, the book of Revelation tells us will create a day when there is no more sea, there is no more chaos, there is no thing to frighten us. He will frighten into submission all that frightens his people. So these psalms, I've argued, are a treasure for God's people. Um, To pray, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, not only when we're full, but when we're empty. They summon us to come to God as we really are and to come to him as he truly is. And so as we close today, um, I want to make a couple of invitations on the basis of this text. Um, The first invitation is for those of you who are not part of God's covenant people. Uh, These assurances, these protections, this God who loves and cares is not yet your God. He is not yet your refuge. There has to be a place, a time in your life when you confess your sins, when you come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I would urge you, if you have not come to that place, to come to that place now, to put it off no longer, to no longer remain unprotected in your sins, but to come under the refuge, the one who truly does love you and will welcome you to himself just as you are in your mess, in your doubts, in your fears. He will welcome you and embrace you. I urge you to come to him today. And for those of you who know the Lord, who have walked with the Lord, who have made that decision to yield your life to Christ, I would urge you to join the song Uh, by which I mean make these prayers your own. Follow the rhythm, follow the journeys, pray them for yourself. Even as the psalmist himself joins the worshiping Hebrews centuries before at the shore of the Red Sea, I would urge you to join the psalmist and the Hebrews as they worship. 
delighting in the God who has rescued and loved us so greatly. So as we close today, let me read from you from that original song of the psalmist joined, Exodus 15, and make this a prayer for us as well. Exodus 15, 11 through 13. Miriam leads the people in worship and says, Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And Lord, I pray this for the saints here at Redeemer Church in Graham, Texas, these saints whom you have redeemed by your son's blood, whom you have held close to your heart, whom you have forgiven, and whom you are a present help in time of trouble. Lord, would you stretch out your arm for them? Would you bring them to new vistas, to new perspectives, so that they might trust you and they might testify to your power on their behalf? And for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen.